Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca. From the star.com Mental Health Association urging all public venues to stock naloxone kits. There's an opioid crisis sweeping the country, and to combat the increasing number of deaths by overdose, the CMHA Ontario Division is urging bars, restaurants, and other public venues to start stocking life-saving naloxone kits. It's backing up that recommendation with a new online resource, which temporarily reverses the effects of opioid overdose, creating a window of opportunity to obtain emergency medical help. According to Camille Quenville, Chief Executive Officer of CMHA Ontario, we don't think twice when we see a defibrillator having a naloxone kit could have the same effect. It may save a life. The CMHA Ontario Online Guide tells people how to spot an opioid-related emergency, how to administer the drug, and what to expect after it takes effect. The person might go into withdrawal and vomit or be confused and disoriented. They may go into overdose again. In the event that someone is given naloxone and they are not experiencing an opioid overdose, there will not be any significant impacts or harm. The resource also includes information to help organizations draft naloxone policies. Quenville said the CMHA Ontario wants to normalize the conversation about having the kits. Our toolkit gives us some leverage to have that conversation. Data from Ontario's chief coroner reveals that 865 Ontarians died of opioid overdose in 2016, a 19% increase since 2015. That means uh, someone dies of an opioid overdose every 10 hours, uh, according to Quenville. There were approximately 2,500 deaths due to opioids in 2016 across Canada. The Ontario government has taken numerous steps to combat the crisis, including the distribution of more than 28,000 naloxone kits to pharmacies, public health units, and community-based organizations that run needle exchange and hepatitis C programs. Kits have also been distributed at provincial correctional facilities. Anyone with an Ontario Health insurance plan card can get one for free at a pharmacy and receive instructions on how to use them. The kits include naloxone. I'm not. It's not going to get easier for me to say that word. Naloxone that can be delivered as a nasal spray or injection. But Quenville said she would like to see them in all public venues. There isn't any rhyme or reason to where people abuse drugs or where they could potentially overdose, uh, says Quenville. Public education and acceptance is critical to reducing opioid overdose deaths. Across the province, the John Howard Society of Ontario is trying to find ways to respond to the opioid crisis, according to Paula Osmock, Executive Director of the charity that advocates for humane treatment of those accused or convicted of crimes. She says there is a significantly increased risk of drug-related deaths, uh, death for individuals upon release from jail or prison, and the majority of those deaths involve opioids. This uh, guide put out by the CMHA certainly helps as it provides valuable naloxone policy, guidance, and education. Opioids are often used for pain management and can include fentanyl, morphine, heroin, and oxycodone. Carmen L., general manager of Toronto's Les Bar and a musician with the band Diana, said she picked up a naloxone kit for the bar as soon as she heard about them in September. 
seemed like a no-brainer. There's no economic reason not to do it, and it doesn't adversely affect anyone who's not overdosing on opioids. She said the material from CMHA Ontario helps expand the discussion about opioid abuse. I think outreach and awareness is tremendously important. She said she doesn't had to use the kit so far. The bar has only been open for a couple months, so hopefully we won't be dealing with it, but statistically, we might. Abbotsford, B.C. police chief praised for mental health advocacy after deadly shooting. Mental health advocates are praising a B.C. police chief for his leadership after he made an impassioned plea for first responders to take care of their mental well-being. Police Chief Bob Rich made his comments toward the end of a 25-minute speech on Sunday at a ceremony honoring Constable John Davidson. The Abbotsford traffic officer had been responding to a report of a stolen car a few weeks prior when he was killed in a daytime shootout that has numbed the Fraser Valley community and drawn the province's first responders together in mourning. After providing more details on what happened the day of Constable Davison's death and reflecting on what his colleague was like as a friend and officer, Chief Rich told the crowd of about 8,000 police officers, military personnel, paramedics, and search and rescue members that he wanted to speak to them as first responders. When an officer dies in such a tragic manner, he said, we lose more than just that first officer. We lose other people who have been traumatically affected. If you get hurt because you've responded heroically on behalf of this community, doing your job, then I want you to take a knee, Chief Rich said, pacing the stage. I want you to get help. I want you to talk to a counselor. I want you to ask your family to bear you up. I want you to take sick days. I want you to put in a claim. I want you to do whatever it takes so that you are well and that when you step back out on the street to protect our community, you are able to do it because you have looked after yourself. There must be a culture shift in policing, he continued. Sucking it up is no longer an acceptable response. If you get help, you will be stronger the next time you have to do something that difficult, Chief Rich said. If you fake it and pretend you're better, the next thing is going to break you in half and we will lose you. An August study published in the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry concluded that Canadian public safety personnel such as police officers, paramedics, firefighters, and correctional workers experience substantial difficulties with mental health at much higher rates than the general public. More than a quarter of over 5,800 participants reported symptoms consistent with two or more disorders. Bev Guthrie, chief executive of the CMHA Association, observed that it was unheard of for a police chief to make such comments a decade ago and noted that this is one area that is actually undergoing a sea change in attitudes. She praised Chief Rich for helping advance the dialogue about first responders' mental health. I'm just very proud as a British Columbian and I'm very proud as a mental health advocate to see that kind of leadership that says this is about the mental health and wellness of our workforce, she said. He didn't simplify it. He didn't say, oh, if we just took one more training program, he really addressed it in its complexity. It's about the organizational culture and knowing that even if you get treatment for PTSD today, it doesn't mean you won't have another episode or a vulnerability in the future. His message was really about, let's catch it early. Aaron Alvarez, spokeswoman for the Tima Contour Memorial Trust, which provides support and training for public safety personnel and their families, likewise applauded the chief for leading what she called an imperative change. Chief Rich's remarks prove that change is possible within policing and within the uniform world as a whole. There's no room for the old suck-it-up mentality. It is one of the major causes of the suicide epidemic in our country. Other police forces, including the RCMP and the Vancouver Police Department, have made similar efforts to support their employees' mental well-being. On top of critical incident stress debriefings following potentially traumatic events, the Vancouver Police Department offers service education and workshops that help identify, for example, when a coworker might need help and how to get it. The RCMP in 2014 launched a mental health strategy for employees that includes mandatory workshops on mental readiness. 
Earlier this year, BC Emergency Health Services began offering paramedics psychological resilience training, in large part owing to the province's opioid crisis, but also so members are better able to navigate the acute stress they encounter on the job. Glenn Wilson, an armed forces veteran who worked at prisons across BC for two decades and instructed aspiring correctional officers for another decade, said first responders in many places are now being urged by their supervisors to talk about any trauma they have experienced on the job. Holding it in? Why carry that baggage, said Mr. Wilson, now retired, who showed up two hours early to Constable Davidson's uh, service on Sunday wearing his Correctional Service Canada uniform. You've got a long, rude march ahead in life, so why carry that extra baggage? Today I'm pleased to welcome Amanda Rochelot. Amanda is a registered social worker in Ontario, currently working in Ottawa. Amanda, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So you currently work in the field in, in Ottawa. What, what led you in that direction at the beginning of your career? Um, I think that throughout my entire youth, uh, I repeatedly heard the words, you're such a good listener. <laughs> you're so empathetic. Um, and uh, I started off doing volunteer work uh, with youth. Um, I did a lot of human rights and social justice, sort of, um, I had those types of interests and joined some, some community groups. And uh, it just seemed to just be natural. I think when, when I was little, I always wanted to be either be a teacher or a police officer or a nurse. And when I actually started thinking about my career, I thought about the purpose of all of those professions. And each one had its, its, its very specific purpose. And it led me to social work. Because social work, at the end of the day, the purpose is just genuinely helping people. And uh, I didn't want to be distracted with a, a curriculum or uh, you know the the medical system and uh, and other things. So so social worker just kind of popped up and uh, was definitely the the right uh, career for me for sure. And and where did you really begin to kind of hone your skills in that area? Uh, right out of school. Uh, in uh, I I went to school at uh, Carleton University, and their school of social work focuses a lot on. A community practice so they have practicums and I did my in third year I did my practicum at a uh, homeless shelter here in Ottawa called the Ottawa Mission and I was pretty young and still a student and uh, was thrown right into the front lines of serving uh, homeless men and uh, being right in their client service center having a lot of direct interaction uh, with clients right off the bat um, so, I mean, I, I developed my skills just through practice, and uh, you didn't really have a, much of a choice. You had to learn fast and uh, accumulate knowledge quickly and accumulate practice quickly and skills. And uh, from there, I continued uh, actually working with the Ottawa Mission for, I was employed right after my practicum ended, and I worked there full time for uh, close to eight years, actually. Wow. And and having worked there for eight years, given where your what your mindset was going into that as a younger person and then coming out of it eight years later, what how did your perspective change on the areas of homelessness, what people are dealing with, um, addiction? Mm-hmm. I, I worked in different departments, so I was able to um, gain new perspectives, work with clients in different contexts, um, you know, ranging from housing to employment to addiction-specific services. Um, when I was young and first starting out, um, you know, now in my training, I, I we call that phase the zealous phase. <laughs> this is the time in our lives where we're very zealous. We're very we're highly motivated. We're full of empathy. We feel like we're going to change the world. And so every new experience is actually kind of exciting. It's this new learning. It, no matter how shocking it is, um, it's it's there's there's a thrill from it because it's new and exciting and and uh, it's it's great to be part of something 
so much bigger than you, you know, making a difference in the, uh, these clients' lives as well as in the community. Eight, fast forward eight years later, and that zealous phase is long over, and now it's exhausting, and now it's overwhelming at times. And um, when you, it's easy to kind of actually lose sight of of the fact that you are making a difference because day after day you end up seeing these same systemic issues, these same social issues, the, the poverty issues, health issues, and sometimes even the same faces of the same clients coming in day after day. And I think at that point, eight years later, you can kind of lose sight of that of the fact that you are still making a difference, but you just end up feeling a little bit like it, just the whole process is kind of daunting and you question yourself and there's a lot more, I, I'm saying yourself, but that was my experience. I, I questioned myself. I, I had self doubt and I wondered, um, you know, that if I could zone in to the individual, I'd say, yeah, I feel good about the work I'm doing. But if I, if I scanned back and looked at the big picture, I would really wonder, like, is this really making a difference or am I just slapping on Band-Aids every day and, um, and really poverty is always going to be here and homelessness is always going to be here and, uh, and that can kind of be overwhelming to maybe, think about. Maybe you can comment on the, on the impact uh, of, of the client's perspective in terms of, of even though it may seem like it's just a Band-Aid from, from your vantage point, what that band date actually looks like and feels like to them, somebody who's continuously there to care for them. I got so much positive feedback from clients over the years. I still do. And um, there were some days where I could really hear that and know that, um, that when I was not only providing services, you know, let's say referrals or um, teaching new skills or providing information, the, the difference was that I was doing it with such empathy that it really made a difference in their lives. And they would often comment on that. They would say, Amanda, you know, I, I've met a lot of social workers in my life, and I haven't met anybody who has really given me the attention or the care or the time like you have. Um, or they would say, you know, um, this, this whole system's so messed up, but knowing that you're here kind of guiding me through it makes it easier. I, I mean, I would get that type of feedback all the time. The difference was is that some days I could hear that and really that would be very refueling and rewarding for me and other days it just the, the that self-doubt would um sort of override their comments and i would um not be able to to fully um absorb that positive feedback hmm. so let's do a quick recap you're you're working at a shelter you you worked there a total of eight years you're dealing with obviously a lot of high needs clients dealing with a whole range of issues. Some days you're like, yeah, I can see the, the impact that I'm having as a positive one. Other days, it seems like you're not having any impact. Ultimately, at what point did you begin to shift your career direction? And, and how does that reflect on today? One of the biggest contributing factors to making some shifts uh, both professionally and personally, was the fact that I became a mother. And uh, I now have three children. And life started to look really different, especially as I added each child to the mix. Um, and, and those little breaks, actually, leaving work for a while and coming uh, being on maternity leave, those, those opportunities to kind of step back and reflect on my career without being right in the middle of it, um, you know, on, on a day-to-day -day basis actually helped give me a lot of perspective. So I would have these, these moments where I would be able to step back and reflect on, wow, this work is both amazing and really wild. I mean, the things that I've seen, the things that I've heard, I, I don't think I actually ever really imagined that um, I would be exposed to that kind of 
information, that kind of human suffering. Mm. And, um, and so stepping back and actually giving that a moment to process that and reflect on that was really powerful. And then I would go back and I would kind of have a bit of that zealous phase back again. And I sort of say, you know, I'm going to do things different and I'm going to be uh, more attentive to my empathy and I'm going to be more present with my clients and I'm going to be better. And the difference there then was that when I left work, my job continued in the sense that now I go home and care for a child. And so anything that I used to be able to do to practice um, sort of decompressing or what I would call sort of those old self-care activities, even if it was, you know, maybe going out for a drink with a colleague or going to a yoga class or taking a walk or something like that, these activities, these resources that once were available to me were no longer available because I had to go home and care for a toddler and um, sometimes lose a lot of sleep over that. And then I would do that over and over again. So now I've got three kids and life is busy. And uh, self-care became, uh, you know, just uh, unrealistic. Uh, it, it got back to the point that I just completely lost sight um, of of those options of what I could do to decompress and uh, my clients' lives became priority during the day and my children's lives became priority at the end of the day um, and I lost sight of my own priority. So basically it all kind of came to a screeching halt when my mental health and my physical health basically got so bad that I had to stop and I had to uh, change the way I was working and the way I was living and the way I saw myself in that work Um, because I just wasn't healthy anymore. I got shingles when I was in my 20s. Um, I got pneumonia multiple times in a a couple-year period. Um, I would hear my husband say to me, who are you, <laughs> you know, um, you know, or, or, um, friends call and basically me avoiding picking up the phone because I just didn't want to interact with human beings anymore that day. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just, I lost, I lost myself. And, um, I was lucky to kind of have some really pivotal moments that were sort of big wake up calls that, gave me perspective and allowed me to uh, take a second look at things and make some changes. And my clients and my children were both major motivators in that process because I I thought, I need to stick around here for them. And at this rate, I'm going to be burnt out and um, flat on my butt in, uh, you know, before my career even really starts. So I made some big changes. Yeah, that's quite significant. So, so in terms of burnout, how did you steer your 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 career in the area of burnout? Well, it basically, like many people, I started off with a Google search and thought, "Well, what do I do if if I recognize that I, I think I'm experiencing burnout, and what am I going to do about that?" So, you know, you go on Google and you find. If you if you type in self care, for example, your your first three or four pages um, on the you know the search engine is going to be basically bloggers and these you know quick list you know top ten ways to practice self care, and pretty much the summary of it all is start having some nice hot bubble baths and take a vacation once in a while and uh, uh, do something nice for yourself, and so. I just basically got really tired of hearing the same old, uh, what I would call sort of impractical uh, sort of solutions that didn't really actually get to the root of what I was experiencing. My burnout specifically was very trauma related. Um, I realized that I was had been exposed to so much trauma information that that was truly my burden. And I wasn't processing that. And as a result, um, it was essentially absorbing all of the energy and empathy that I had to be able to go forward and live my life or do my job the way I wanted to. And that was the source of my burnout. So so hot bubble bath wasn't going to cut it for me. (laughs) (laughs) 
right? I, I wasn't, it, that's not going to make that suffering go away. Or it's not going to, I used to say to myself, I wish I could unknow what I know uh, or unsee what I've seen. Um, so I, I tried self-care. I sat in the hot bubble bath and I started swimming and I started trying to spend more time with friends and I started doing all the things that, you know, your typical self-care recommendations would involve. And I still felt, found myself really preoccupied with um, this trauma information. And and then that kind of come, gets coupled with, uh, again, the self-criticism and, and uh, self-doubt as well. So... Um, I dug deeper and I found some sources of information that was very specific to uh, social services and and, uh, um, I learned about terms like secondary traumatic stress and terms like compassion fatigue, which basically talks about the experience of burnout and and related uh, symptoms in the context of being a frontline worker and working with other human beings and and specifically human beings who are experiencing trauma and telling you about it. So that made the difference for me. It was like, yes, this this is finally some information that's not telling me to go get a go have a hot bubble bath, tell me to go get some therapy or, uh, you know, be, become more trauma informed, uh, when doing my work. Um, so, but because it took me so long to be able to access that information, finally, my motivation for doing what I do today was really, I need to share this information with other people. This is critical information that we all need to learn as frontline workers, as healthcare providers, social workers. We need to learn this before we start our work. We need to be reminded of this as we do our work, and we need quick and and affordable and effective access to services that are going to help us stay healthy as we do this amazing work that we are all doing. So that was my motivation was how can I take this information and package it in a way that's really accessible to my fellow community workers. So today you are a compassion fatigue specialist, that's right? Yes. And you go into different organizations and you basically talk about the importance of all these things that you've just shared. Exactly. So a big part of it is just education, introducing terminology and concepts that are uh, really important that we are all experiencing. These are the occupational hazards of our social service work, Um, burnout, uh, compassion fatigue, secondary traumatic stress. Um, they're they're in in some ways unavoidable. Um, they're there and very present, but on this continuum. So if we have some knowledge about about and some awareness of that, then we can actually um, kind of cope with it in in healthier ways. So a big part is just educating and introducing the terminology um, and uh, and the reality, um, and then and then my my approach is really to make sure that. The, um, the steps we take are very personal and very practical, and I'm not going to tell you to go have a hot bubble bath. If you want to, sure, enjoy the hot bubble <laughs> bath. But, but the, the, the piece is really what kind of mindset are you going to be in when you have that hot bubble bath? And um, I can teach you some strategies to be able to reframe your thinking around your work, to process uh, trauma exposure that might come about, um, to increase self-awareness, to increase self-compassion. And these are all the techniques, the very personal work that we have to learn how to do in order to actually become more resilient workers uh, for the long run. And, And how, from your vantage point now, working in this field beyond just, you know, where you were before, going into other organizations, how common is this? Very common. Uh, there is not one group that I have spoken to that hasn't um, really, really um, understood what I'm talking about and has applied it to their own personal work. Um, so I don't just talk to social workers. I talk to nurses who get it. I talk to teachers who are also get it. They are experiencing uh, burnout in their way um, and the stress of their, of their work in their way. Um, 
I actually just did a speech in uh, Toronto last week, and in the uh, audience, um, there was an accountant. And he stood up and he said, you know, I know you weren't trying to talk, you, you didn't think that you were talking to uh, an accountant here in the room, but I want to let you know that everything you just said actually really applies to my experience. And, you know, you asked me, uh, you know, a question or two about burnout come April when, you know, he's, he's working 80 hours a week during tax time. And the, the, you know, it really kind of gave me that perspective of like, wow, I hadn't really thought that even an accountant could relate to um, what I'm talking about here, burnout and compassion fatigue. So it really does apply to just about everybody. Um, we're, we're, the added factor today and present time is that we're not just going out into the world, doing our work and trying to do the best we can. But we're exposed to trauma information so much outside of that as well. With the with social media and the level of uh, sort of negative news um, that we're exposed to, that is a very subtle contributing factor to um, the common experience of burnout today as well. That takes energy and um, and empathy and uh, to, to, to pay attention to and it's just kind of working in the background and taking what little we have left sometimes um, away from us just, just by listening to the news. And now certainly the way that you've touched on it that there's just due to exposure there's 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 trauma that's that's created in that regard for a frontline worker or, or anybody in you know teacher, nurse, what have you and, and that there's you know, a personal responsibility for that individual, I would have to think that there's also a responsibility when it comes to an organization, the the organization that you're working for, um, in terms of how that organization, how that field staff as a whole is being managed and how much trust there is in a workplace and how that's often that's being communicated. Can you speak on the impact of what organizations need to be doing a little bit differently to support people to minimize like internal stress. Absolutely. I think there are some organizations, at least ones that I've interacted with in our community here in Ottawa that are doing it right. They're doing a great job at even just inviting me in to speak to their team speaks to their level of attention of, hey, you know, we're willing to, to put aside the time and the money to get somebody in here to help my staff understand what they're going through and how to get through that. Sometimes the managers are not present in those meetings, and that's an interesting decision. There's pros and cons to that. And then other times they want to be really heavily involved, and they say, you know, I need to learn this too so that I can be a, a better supporter um, to my team. Uh, I've found that a lot of organizations are willing to, to invest in training when it comes to serving the clients, but when it comes to serving the staff, they don't prioritize that. So part of my my sort of ambition, my, my goal here in the community is to actually just increase that awareness and that how there's a, a, a trickle-down effect. When you support staff and you have healthy staff members on your team, then you're inevitably serving clients so much better. Um so they just they just need to 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 not divide the two uh, training towards staff and training towards clients that that it's all the same. Um, debriefing is a really big component of of what an organization can do to improve um, their uh, staff's mental health in general. Um, we don't tend to prioritize clinical supervision or debriefing. Um, sometimes uh, an agency will do that if there's been a very uh, profound incident maybe within the, the agency or the community or with a client, specific client. But, uh, so sometimes they'll offer debriefing there. But debriefing is something that needs to happen on a regular basis. And not just debriefing about the, the, the client's situation or who's involved, but actually checking in with the staff and saying, 
um, you know, that's a really difficult uh, caseload that you have, or um, that sounds like that was a really difficult interaction with that individual. Do you want to talk about it? How are you feeling about it now? Um, and checking in with staff, you know, for example, we do maybe job performances are evaluated, uh, where staff are evaluated, but, but are we actually without a purpose, are we actually checking in and evaluating our, our staff's mental health, you know, not just their performance? Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest barrier right there, I mean, that's a link right there of why many staff don't feel like they can go to their managers and say, I'm not doing so great. I don't feel like I'm being effective in my job. I feel burnt out. I feel exhausted. I feel emotionally exhausted because they're afraid that they're going to, um, that that's it's going to appear as though they're not performing well, that they're going to bring light to that, to their employer. And there's a little bit of reservation about doing that, understandably so. So as an employer, if you separate those and say, you know, I genuinely care about your well-being, your job performance is over here and something else. Um, but we can, we can, I actually genuinely want to know that you're healthy and, and, um, and, and feeling okay in the work you're doing. Um, from my experience of being very young and, and starting off in the shelter system, I mean, a, a big part of that was I was developing my skills as I was um, gaining this experience. So sometimes a, another contributing factor is, is that we're putting our frontline workers in positions where they don't actually have, or they're not fully equipped with all the skills or resources in order to do that job well. And then that burden falls back on the worker. And so the agencies need to actually um, just honor that and respect that, that, um, you know, we need to send you into situations that you can handle and, and, and with all the resources you need. And that sometimes means restructuring. That means sometimes taking somebody out of the front lines and sending them to training and you're shuffling staff in order to accommodate that. We're all so strapped up. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough resources. I don't think you would ever talk to any nonprofit agency who would say, yeah, actually, we've got everything we need. (laughs) You know, we all wish we had more, um, but we can't use that as an excuse not to take care of the people who are doing this amazing work on the front lines. Well, this is an incredibly important topic, and it it sounds like it's going to be relevant for a very long time. And I I want to thank you, Amanda, for being here and sharing your insight. And and what's the best way to somebody to, to get in touch with you if they have questions or want to connect? Yeah, I've got a lot of free resources on my website. My website is my name, Amanda Rochelow, R-O-C-H-E-L-E-A-U.com. Um, and also, if, if, if you didn't catch that name, then uh, if you Google Compassion Fatigue Ottawa, I'll, I'll pop up right there on uh, Google. So, um, so you can definitely go to my website, get in touch with me there, learn more about burnout, compassion fatigue, secondary traumatic stress, um, and also access a lot of resources there, links and uh, apps and some reading material that can kind of maybe get the ball started uh, in just you rethinking about your experience um, on the front lines as a caregiver. That's great. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thanks, Tim. It's now time for Music and the Mind, where we spotlight addiction, recovery, and the search for the natural high. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. Remember the movie The Sixth Sense? By most accounts, it was a huge hit, going on to gross worldwide revenues in excess of $650 million. Not bad for a movie with a budget of $40 million. There was a line in The Sixth Sense that went on to become somewhat of a cultural phenomenon, widely used in conversation and comedy skits alike. The line? I see dead people. While we may shudder a bit when we hear it now due to its widespread overuse, 
Back then, it was both chilling and telling. It was chilling because it was that primal moment in the movie where you come to understand what's really going on. And it was telling because it was a powerful symbol in a broader sense, pointing to the very real experience for many people who are walking around today stressed, without vitality, dead inside, and without passion. For almost 22 years, I wore a mask. I didn't know I was wearing a mask, and like the characters in The Sixth Sense who didn't know they were dead, it had a very real and life-altering impact on my day-to-day experience. When I first began to experiment with my mask, I also didn't know it would soon become a crutch. I didn't know it would cause me a lot of pain, and I didn't know it would cause pain in the lives of those I cared about. As I continued to deepen my belief that my mask was me, I was unknowingly moving further and further away from authenticity, health, and my destiny, if you will. My, ba- my, my mask had begun at once to contaminate my soul, my vessel, if you will, and the precious contents that it contained. And then one night, while living in Seoul, South Korea, my life would be forever altered. Stumbling back to my bachelor apartment with no keys and no money, I decided the best way for me to get into my apartment would be to rappel down the side of my six-story apartment building using a black television cable. Thankfully, I could start my descent from my neighbor's balcony on the fifth floor, but ultimately this improvement made little difference. Quickly, I was forced into free fall due to the searing friction burn that was created from trying to hold tight to the cable. Today, I have deep scarring on both hands as a gentle reminder should I forget what happened that evening. It's been 13 years since that fateful night and almost two years, actually just over two years, since I quit drinking. I know what you're thinking. Tim, why did it take you 11 years to decide that taking a break from alcohol might be an interesting experiment, especially after your Spider-Man attempt? Stubbornness, silliness, hard-nettedness, Fear, inability to say no, high need for approval, reluctance toward rejection, culture acceptance. There's lots of reasons, and there may be others, but that ultimately captures the gist of it. So now, it has been over two years since I stopped consuming alcohol. Has it been worth it? People ask me if I miss it. To be honest, there's the occasional moment when I feel that nostalgic pull that comes from deeply experienced memories wine over dinner with my wife, beer with the boys on the golf course. But do I miss it sufficiently enough to start again? No, I don't. And the reasons those fleeting seconds of nostalgia no longer possess the power to send me back to the bottle rest firmly in the following truth. The best version of me is not found down that path. I know that now. I draw tremendous strength today from being in situations where other people are consuming alcohol, and I repeatedly make the decision to say no. As I continue to say yes to my better path, my confidence continues to grow. My health continues to strengthen. My clarity continues to sharpen. My intuition continues to deepen. And the people, places, and experiences that have been written into the fabric of my destiny are aligning faster than I can handle. To watch it unfold has been humbling and breathtaking. Alcohol may not be your issue. Maybe the thing that is contaminating your ultimate destiny from taking shape in a more deliberate way is, well, what is it? Food? Sugar? Drugs? Alcohol? Porn? Fear? Anxiety? Stress? It's important that we step back from our habituated ways of being to assess ourselves at a deeper level to determine if the way that we're used to living is working. And if it is working, then what does that mean? If it isn't working, then what does that mean? Which is something I do in a weekly support group that I facilitate called MindWell. It's Thursdays from 7 to 8.30 at 1111 Taylor Kid Boulevard. So I work with people to help them figure out what's working and what isn't working and to gain perspective on each of those and to put steps in place to improve what is working and to uh, reassess what isn't working. I'd now like to talk a little bit about a movie that I watched this week, specifically for this show. 
And the name of the movie is Split. It's a thriller for sure. It's a very uh, intense movie. And it follows the storyline of main character Kevin Wendell Crumb, played by James McAvoy. Kevin has dissociative identity disorder, which is caused from trauma that he experienced as a child, physical abuse uh, from his mother. Now, trauma from one of our online resources is defined as a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. So if we turn our attention to the music world, Adam Duritz from The Counting Crows revealed years ago that he has dissociative form of dissociative identity disorder. And how he came to discover it, he was in Australia on tour, and he got news that his grandmother had passed away, and he got news that his girlfriend was breaking up with him. So he's talking to a friend and he's saying, you know, it's just such a shame that I can't go home to the funeral because I have to go to Adelaide today. And his friend is like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, you've lost touch with things. You need to go home and be with your family type thing. And within a day or so, he came to the realization that he needed to go home. But it wasn't about just about his family wasn't just about depression, wasn't just about workaho- workaholism. He came to discover that he had a severe mental illness that makes it very hard for him to do his job. This form of dissociative disorder that makes the world seem like it's not real, as if things aren't taking place. He says it's hard to explain, but he feels untethered. And because nothing seems real, it's hard to connect with the world or the people in it because they're not there. You're not there. That's why... He rarely saw his family back at that time. It's hard to care about things, people in your life, when everything feels as if it's taking place in your imagination. And if you're distant with people, especially women you're romantically involved with, they eventually leave you, Adam says. What makes the situation worse is that every night he goes out on stage and he has this incredible emotional connection between himself and the band and the audience. And then when it's over, he goes backstage, goes to the bus, the hotel room, and he sits there by himself. That deep connection during his musical performance is yanked away in an instant. It's like breaking up with your girlfriend over and over again every night. So after many years of trying to get this figured out and work through different medications and different doctors, um, a lot of his music writing and The inspiration that comes uh, through his songs, a lot of it has to do with his personal experiences with with mental illness and the challenges of what that's been like. Uh, It's quite fascinating. You should do some research on Adam Duritz, The Counting Crows. Here The Counting Crows are with A Long December.
think you should Yes, I should. There's reason to believe that maybe this year will be better than the last. That was Adam Duritz counting crows a long December. Duritz also says of his mental health issues that obviously dissociative disorder will worsen unless you take steps to fix it. First, he treated it with medication with mixed results. Then he learned ways to cope with it, which is a whole other challenge. He gained 70 pounds from the meds he was taking initially. And finally decided that he needed to do more. He says he's not the suicidal type. He knows that life is a very rare thing. Especially his life, for which he feels very grateful. He can remember at age 7 standing in front of a mirror with a tennis racket playing Can't Buy Me Love. He says, I made it. I'm a rock star. I respect that too much to toss it away. So he switched doctors and found a specialist who really understood at the time his condition. It was terrifying because change brings fear and different consequences, but ultimately it made a very positive impact on his life. So... I am in no way minimizing the subject of suicide or the complexity of it, but I'm just picking up on what Adam's saying, that something in his life that he has tremendous respect for, really he was able to focus in on that and continue to find his reason for, for, for being and for moving on, which was his music. He has tremendous respect for the fact that he's had success in that area. 
and has extreme gratitude. And so because of that, he's not willing to just throw that away. So I don't know if you're feeling suicidal, if you have having bad thoughts today. I'm not suggesting, like I said, that it's as simple as just that that's all going to go away by focusing, thinking about something that you're, that you respect in your life. But if there's a person in your life or if there's an accomplishment in your life that you feel respect for, towards, about, maybe just try to use that as a leverage point to get you to the next step, which is maybe seeing a doctor, calling a friend, um, taking that next step in a positive direction. So, it, you know, there's a lot of people out there that have mental health issues that we never know about. I mean, up until this week, I had no idea that after listening to the Counting Crows for years and years and years, I had no idea that as a consumer, all I know is I buy the music and I listen to it and I like it and I listen to it at parties and hear it on the radio and turn it up and I'm just the consumer. I'm the consumer of entertainment, and that's that's as far as it goes. But, I mean, these are people. They're not just performers. They're people with real lives and real problems, and some of them, like Adam and, and many others that have talked about over, on the show over the last month or so, musicians and stars who are dealing with some pretty difficult mental health issues and have been find, found the courage to come forward and speak publicly on it, which is a great thing because it gives permission for other people to realize that it's okay to feel what they're feeling. It's it's sometimes normal given your circumstances and that there is help out there. So please reach out if you're feeling off. This has been another edition of Talk with Timmy G on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. If you have any questions or feedback or would like to be featured on the show, please email me at info at timothydgauthier.com. That's info at timothydgauthier.com. Every Thursday from 7 to 8.30, I facilitate a free drop-in group called MindWell. It's a support group for anybody dealing with burnout, stress, anxiety. Again, that's every Thursday from 7 to 8.30. Address 1111 Taylor Kidd Boulevard at St. Paul the Apostle. Until next week, be smart, be safe. CFRC Radio holds its annual general meeting on Tuesday, December the 5th from 6 until 7 p.m. The meeting takes place in room 100 of the Queen's Kinesiology Building, 28 Division Street, just off Union Street. Members of CFRC Radio are encouraged to attend. Members include all Queen's undergraduate students. Queen's graduate or professional students who have not opted out of CFRC membership and community members who have paid the $7.50 annual membership fee. Hear the latest news from CFRC's board of directors and committees. Participate in station governance. Meet CFRC staff and fellow volunteers. All CFRC members are welcome and the room is accessible. For more information, contact the CFRC board of directors at board at cfrc.ca. The Canadian Foundation for Cross-Cultural Dialogue proudly introduces its new project, Baldwin and La Fontaine, Towards Responsible Government. With your family, friends and classmates, learn more about the role played by those important figures in shaping Canadian government as we know it today. Visit baldwinlafontaine.ca to discover clips, documentaries, and a teaching guide. Enter the National Web Contest for a chance to win a trip for two to Toronto or a post-secondary scholarship. CFRC hit the airwaves in 1922. Do you know what the world was like in 1922? Well, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, Judy Garland was born. In 2017, CFRC Radio celebrates 95 years of creating campus community radio in Kingston, Ontario. We know we live in the greatest country, but we all know it's not the warmest country. Winter is coming, and you know what that means. The weather will be frozen. Frozen. 
This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.